from the Yale Broadcast Studio. This is The Big Picture with Bella Bears Bankrader. Welcome to The Big Picture. I am here with Kirsten Rulf. Kirsten, you were the nerd-in-chief of the federal chancellery of Germany. You work closely with Angela Merkel uh, on di digital policy. Uh, tell us a little more about yourself. And uh, again, thank you so much for taking up this invitation. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a great joy to be here um, and tell you a little bit about my work. I joined the federal chancellery in 2019 Uh, in January, and it's been quite a ride un up and until then. Um, I was at Harvard University before um, I joined the chancellery. I worked there on autonomous driving and um, consulting to cities and countries how they can implement autonomous cars into the life of their citizens. That's what I did um, with Israel, with Canada, with countries in South America, with Boston itself, which is a big hub for testing. And I really liked working at the intersection of implementing technology and changing people's lives, but also um, on thought leadership, like what should these cars um, do? What should they not do? How should they contribute to everyday life? And how should the algorithms work? So I really liked working there. And when I joined the chancellery, um, my portfolio became a lot broader. Obviously, I still worked on artificial intelligence and its implementation, but also on quantum computing um, on digital infrastructure, on digital competencies for the people, on cybersecurity, on upskilling and reskilling for digital government. So a huge portfolio, a great, amazing team that I could hire. We were the first people in the federal chancellery, actually, to take these jobs up. And, of course, I worked with an incredible boss. <laughs> you, you did. She certainly was uh, really a visionary uh, leader. Uh, and it's interesting, you mentioned um, automated uh, driving. I wasn't planning to talk about this, but it's actually very interesting because <laughs> I've been wondering, you know, a couple of years ago, it seemed like it was on the horizon. And we could all imagine sometime in the 2020s, we'll actually um, gradually see um, autonomous vehicles populating our cities. And yet, I think that's given way to a somewhat more cautious outlook. Can you talk about just where we are uh, in the project of automating uh, vehicles? Yes, for sure. I mean... It really depends on what you think uh, an autonomous car will look like and what it will be. Um, you can go on the streets of New Haven right now and find semi-autonomous cars driving around. Um, but it's not as fancy as it sounds. It's just those cars that help you, you know, find a parking space, etc. But what we were truly talking about when we meant or when we when we researched autonomous cars were those cars that drive completely without a driver all the time autonomously. And it turns out it's actually really difficult to implement those because there's all kinds of unforeseen um, obstacles that even the smartest artificial intelligence cannot circumvent so easily. So I can give you an example from Boston. Um, at a certain point, there was always this really strange and alien creature that made the car stop suddenly in its tracks. And the car never found its way back to driving on the testing grounds. And we were, for a long time, we were wondering, you know, what what could this be? 
um, why does the algorithm not pick up on it? We've, you know, we calibrated it so much. And then it turns out um, it was actually a seabird, a seagull. Wow. Um, and because seagulls are so different, like they, they react so um you know, randomly, you cannot program the car so that it will ever understand this is just a bird. And the birds were having a lot of fun. <laughs> they were making the car stop. They were making the cars go around them. They realized pretty quickly, you know, okay, we can have a play uh, with these cars. And actually, humans are the same. So the first autonomous cars in, in San Francisco, uh, we realized humans actually bully them because the cars stop. Um, when when a human and, and it's supposed to stop when a human uh, you know gets anywhere near it uh, and in danger, but humans started to bully those cars, like making fun of them, stopping them in their tracks, um, <laughs> having them go to the side, and even up and until now, that's a really hard problem to solve. Um, because you need so many things to come together, mm. um, not just the software, but also the hardware to pick this up. Um, it, the car needs to communicate with its surrounding in a very complex way, and that's not at all easy to do. And I think there's this is something very unexpected in the development of the technology, right? Um, and it's still a big problem. What's your best guess as to when we will be able to summon through an app? An, a fully automated taxi, and it, I know it's probably hard to predict. But if you if you had to bet, what year do you think we'll be able to do that in a major city, say in the United States? Actually, you can already do it. You can do it in San Francisco. Um, there are startups that offer it, but it's not a pleasant pleasant uh, thing to do. Actually, right now you wouldn't enjoy it. So very few people do it, um, and. I would say like fully autonomous cars, maybe in the 2030s, I would say. But what I find more exciting is um, public transport that's autonomous because that's actually where right now the future is, mm -hmm. um, autonomous buses. There is one in Berlin going, you know, from the from one big clinic to another. Mm -hmm. um, Most of the time, it just doesn't work and breaks down. But I think public transport uh, is really the future of autonomous driving because it's it's so much more um, inexpensive for for the companies, of course, and it can transport many more people. And I would say 2030s. 2030s. Yeah. Fascinating. We are going to talk about artificial intelligence today and its potential role as a geopolitical actor. Let's start, Kirsten, with, you know, it might be good to start with a definition. What do we mean when we say artificial intelligence? <laughs> You're starting with the hardest problem. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's, I mean, if I were to be able to like quickly define it, um, I would actually be right now probably president of the European Union because... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm also negotiating with the other member states of the European Union right now, the Artificial Intelligence Act, and coming up with a definition for artificial intelligence is the hardest part. Right. And we've been at it for about a year, so and we're still arguing about it. It's it's not an easy thing to do. Um, so don't hold me accountable for the definition that I'm going to give. Well, it's only the EU <laughs> definition being negotiated, so what do they know? Exactly. What do they know? What does the White House know that right. put it up? <laughs> last week. Um, so I would say, very simply put, it's pattern recognition. It's pattern recognition on a very high level. So an artificial intelligence or rather machine learning algorithm um, goes over a huge data set. 
um, of data points and finds patterns in it and then makes predictions for what's going to happen next according to, to the patterns that it seems to have um, detected in a large data set. So what you need for artificial intelligence is a really good data set, very big data set also, um, and then someone who can tell um, the software how to make sense of that data set. Fascinating. And then I, I think I read at some point that it's also, one can also think about artificial intelligence as code that writes itself. Some of it, yes. Some of it. Yeah. In pursuit of, of it, you ask it to solve a problem, it uses a massive data set to identify patterns. But, but depending on your instruction, it might also write code to approach a solution to the question you asked. Is that another element of it? So some of it, yes. I mean, the latest um, machine learning that we have certainly goes into that direction. It's very complex. And um, I mean, the, the most spooky um, machine learning algorithms that I know are the ones that learn without telling them the problem. Um, and they find sort of the problem themselves and then teach themselves how to solve it. And it sounds really spooky. It's actually just mathematics, but I'm not sure that you've heard about this Google programmer that recently um, claimed that the artificial intelligence uh, he had programmed was actually sentient. Sentient, yeah. Yeah, sentient. Um, I have. Yeah. Say more about that because maybe people haven't heard. So, yeah, so, so um, this um, you know, programmer at Google um, was in charge of a research project because the very latest and most complex research on artificial intelligence actually comes out of the private sector. So he was in charge um, of this artificial intelligence and he got spooked by it. He got spooked by it because it was a it was a program where um, you can actually talk to the program. And that's sort of the next level, right? Because what we really want, or not we, but what companies really want is to put artificial intelligence into everyday life. And one of the easiest and most efficient ways to do that is actually to have it communicate with humans and pretend that it is a human um, itself. And this artificial intelligence did that so perfectly that even its own programmer was very very spooked. It was like, okay, it, it pretended to have a consciousness and it pretended to have feelings that, of course, it didn't have. But even its own creator got so spooked by it and that he actually was like, okay, I need to back off here. I need to, like, we really need to leave the thing alone. We shouldn't do it. I'm warning everyone against um, putting this thing out into the open where, of course, it would have access to even more data that is being given by all of us to the, to the you know to the data set and will become even more human like right. um, and he got very spooked by that and and this is i believe what's called a large language model right and those are getting increasingly sophisticated uh, in fact i've been uh, for the last few months i've been playing with gpt3 which is another uh, I, I believe that's distinct from what Google is doing, right? GPT-3 is open AI, which is, I believe that started as a nonprofit effort and now somehow Microsoft is involved in that as well. But, but GPT-3 has really fascinated me in the last few weeks. It's incredible how this tool can be fed uh, a piece of text and then it will, to a shockingly precise degree, um, suggest how to continue that that piece of text. And it's really, really compelling. And I think that's the kind of technology that you are mentioning now, right? That uh, 
has the capacity to converse with human beings. It can be used as a chat bot. It could be, uh, you know, it could generate uh, text and uh, speeches perhaps and all sorts yeah. of things, right? Yeah, absolutely fascinating. And at the same time, of course, super useful for humans to communicate with each other and make it easier. So there's always these two sides to AI. I'm fascinated uh, by that model too. I think it could, you know, it could make governments so much more efficient. Um, it could help us communicate in you know, global governance structures a lot better. At the same time, it can also manipulate the discussion really well. Um, and it's it's always these two sides to AI that fascinate me. Mm. And and we're going to get into into exactly that tension that exists between, on the one hand, the tremendous opportunities, and and then on the other hand, the risks and the pitfalls. That uh, it, you know what's what, what I find striking, Kirsten, is the more I learn about this, the more I realize just the magnitude of what what's about to happen in terms of artificial intelligence. I mean, one of the insights I had over this summer was really the profession of the lawyer could be totally <laughs> obsolete within 10, 15 years or large parts of it. That's a shocking realization. Once you actually play with GPT-3, you realize, wow, this is really, really good. And it's only 2022. What's this thing going to be like in 2028 or 2034? So, and, and the other field is, 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 of course, politics and political communication, where I read a study the other day that truly, truly shocked me. And it was an effort to create simulated audiences that you, the, those researchers fed using GPT-3, fed uh, a system with demographic data, preferences of a general kind, and simulated a broad audience um, that can now, in turn, you know, you can predict how this audience is likely to vote, where it's going to go shop, what it's going to do next. It's uh, it's really interesting. But It's really interesting, and I'm always between the fascination. I mean, you always, or obviously, you know, you're looking at me like so fascinated by this, and so am I, like the fascination for these models. And another model that's out there, it's also openly available, is DALI 2. I've been dang dangling around with that one, but it will it has the potential to eradicate graphic design jobs like completely. You can you can create amazing um, pictures with it in seconds. Uh, you can calibrate it. I, I use for all my my presentations here at Yale. I use pictures created by Dali too. Wow. Yeah, but of course, you know, what about photographers? What about creative people? Um, what about their jobs? And GPT three even more powerful because it deals with language. I think right. um, and has the, the power to disrupt more professions. Um, and I'm fascinated by it, and I think there's the progress is at light speed. Um, and a lot of things that even five years ago when I was still a researcher were not possible at all and a lot of experts said, oh, that's not going to happen, um, are here now. At the same time, other progress hasn't still hasn't happened. You mentioned autonomous cars, right? right. Um, so um, it's really hard to predict the sector and that makes it so complex for policymakers. It's hard to understand. The science behind it is hard to understand. But if I look at my field, the European Union, it takes sometimes four to five years to make a law. And then it's out there, but it's not implemented. 
um, look at GDPR, right? It took four years to make the law. Then it takes now another five years to implement it properly. Um, and that's just too slow for these technologies. It's just too slow. And GDPR, of course, is the General Data Protection Regulation of the European Union, which uh, really is considered a, a model in, in many parts of the world uh, when it comes to protecting our, our privacy on, on the Internet. Um, I wonder if we can uh, talk about regulation, uh, Kirsten, in a general way. What are some of the areas that, in your view, require regulation the most? Or are, where, where should our attention go when we think of regulating AI, which is this broad idea? What are some of the priorities that uh, we should look at? Yeah, so that's a difficult question. I think... Something that has not come up at all in the current discussion um, is that, yes, here and there, certain actors out there in the world are trying to regulate AI, like the European Union, as you said. The White House has just put something out uh, last week. Uh, there's debates in Asia. But AI is global. And we don't have a global body to even talk about these questions. There is no global forum to debate what we mean or what, where we want to go with this technology. At the same time, private sector actors are driving, as I said, the development at light speed. So we have a real sort of mis, you know, like uneven power balance here between governments and, and private sector actors. Um, and also between certain governments and others, right? I mean, if you look at things that are happening in China, um, it's very different than what's happening here in terms of regulation. So I think one of the most interesting areas to look at right now is global governance and really see how we can even speak about these um, problems on a more global level. Then if we can't have that, and right now it's not looking at that, I think we should really debate um, the data sets that are the foundations of artificial intelligence. Um, and we should Those are political, right? I mean, mm. it, it's a political data set if you have a data set that's only about women and car accidents, for instance, mm. or only about white people and medicine. That's um, that's a political data set in, it, in its essence. Um, and that's really right now, I think, for me, the hottest topic because the models that we build are built from data sets. Mm. Um, and we need to look at those. And then the last frontier really right now is synthetic data like the ones that you mentioned, right? It's data of people that don't exist. I mean, some of us on the internet maybe have seen these faces of people that don't exist in reality. And a lot is happening on the medical front, like data that just pretends to be a patient that doesn't exist. Um, and I think that's really like the last frontier where it's running away from regulation at all, the whole sector of AI and data. Wow. That's that's a really helpful overview of sort of the, the the big frontiers. Maybe on the first area that you mentioned, would we need something like a, uh, the equivalent of a Paris climate conference? Because clearly, in the field of climate, that too is a is a global issue where the institutions that exist alone cannot address the scale of the problem, and so. Is that what it would take perhaps to, to start 
looking at these questions with all of the world's uh, countries. That's a fascinating idea. And a lot of countries and companies are actually calling for that. But the question is, who's going to convene that? It's going to be the U.S. as a major player itself that for the longest time had no interest in regulation. Um, it's going to be China that has a very clear intent to use the technology for a surveillance technology. So it's it's hard um, to find someone to convene that. But yes, I think that's sort of definitely an idea that needs to be out there and needs to be out there very soon and put into practice. One thing I'm wondering, Kirsten, uh, that I've wondered often, and it's uh, something that I could not readily find an answer to online. Maybe you can help me <laughs> understand this. We have clearly a major well-funded effort in China to uh, develop artificial intelligence. Um, you have Silicon Valley where there is Google and its DeepMind um, division in London, which they bought. That, that seems to be a highly advanced uh, uh, effort. And then you have OpenAI, which in the first place was created to precisely to not have anybody hold the single key mm -hmm. to this powerful technology. Mm -hmm. And I could only assume that parts of the U.S. government are also involved in artificially. I mean, uh, I, I, I would be really surprised if the Department of Defense, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Pentagon, doesn't have a highly sophisticated, right? Because yeah. there's obviously a lot of national Focus. security implications. It's actually DARPA is one of the origins of AI. Okay. Yeah. So, so can you? Do you have a sense of of you know what are? First of all, is this a, a, a broadly good representation of existing efforts? Did I miss anything? And who is farthest ahead from your understanding in in, in terms of developing artificial intelligence? That's a good question. I think we should not discard the Middle East with Israel, obviously for military reasons, um, a huge, huge push for AI day, there, and um, also really good work coming out of there, um, scientifically speaking, really good good work. Um, Russia, wow. <laughs> never to be discarded as, a, as an actor on the world's, uh, world stage. Um, Europe, not so much, I have to say. I mean, there's good companies there and good research, um, but I don't, so far don't see a global actor coming out of that, um, not in, to the scale. It's hard to say who's furthest ahead because it really depends on what AI we're looking for. Is it language? Then I would definitely say um, the Americans are way ahead of everyone else um, there. Is it you know, facial recognition slash picture recognition? The Chinese way ahead which is else. very scary. Very scary. And exporting that technology to Africa and the Middle East on a very large scale. And we actually see that also in the Ukraine war, right? Um, so obviously there, Clearview being used already to identify people. Not a Chinese technology, a Western technology, but I cannot imagine that the Russians haven't something similar in right. place. We just don't know about it. Um, so it's really hard to say because um, it really depends on what AI we're looking for, who's ahead. And that's so far still a good thing, politically speaking, um, but it won't be like that for much longer, I think. Mm. So maybe we can um, uh, talk briefly, uh, Kirsten, about this notion of artificial general intelligence. I'd love to hear from you as somebody who's was actually involved in the policy side of things. 
there is this uh, concept of artificial general intelligence, which I believe is defined as the moment artificial intelligence reaches human level intelligence. And then there's another more sci-fi concept of uh, artificial super intelligence where some moment will be reached at some point in the future where our artificial intelligence exponentially and exponentially grows in ways that are hard to even imagine. Um, are those sort of like the uh, the, the milestones that uh, even, you know, in the, in the more informed policy circles are, are seen as uh, those to watch in the coming decades? <laughs> well, there's certainly those in the media. Um, um, so both concepts have been around for decades, actually since the 70s. Um, and I personally am very skeptic about both of them. Because so far, even though the models that we have are quite advanced, um, they still need quite a lot of work. And there's also computing power as a factor to be considered. So computer, computing power has made a lot of progress in the last few years um, and will continue to make progress. And certainly certain barriers that we thought as researchers were in place uh, are no longer in place. But it still is a limiting factor. Um, you know, chips supercomputing capabilities, um, those are certainly limiting factors. So I don't think we will see any of those two concepts in realization anytime soon. Um, as a policymaker, however, those are the scenarios that you constantly are faced with. Every politician is faced with them with like the Terminator kind of right. <laughs> <laughs> image or like lots of movies that I enjoy watching too, sci-fi movies. Um, we've seen, I mean, I'm a Star Trek fan. Uh, Me too. Oh. <laughs> very much. Uh, and certainly we see it there. Yeah. But it's, it's too hard and I can't see it happening. Um, but then again. You know, nobody thought that we would ever get to this point um, in the 70s and even in the 90s, right? So um, let's see. <laughs> Let us talk, uh, Kirsten, a little, a little bit more. You touched on the geopolitical implications and the use, uh, you were just mentioning the use by China. That, well, first of all, the development of highly advanced artificial intelligence-based technology uh, for image and, 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 and thereby face recognition um, that China is readily making available to autocratic regimes around the world. That's really, really scary. Um, and, and I wonder, and this is a hard question, I believe, but, but what are some of the best ideas you've seen uh, about how we can counter that uh, development and, and dynamic, because it clearly, clearly, we're talking about qualitatively something very, very different. We're talking about something that has, in the worst case scenario, the potential to perpetuate autocratic rule in yeah. various places, because the, you will really have the upper hand. Upper hand. It, and, and, you know, there are all these reports from China already with the uh, Uyghurs uh, being essentially guinea pigs yeah. uh, for a lot of these yeah. technologies. Talk a little bit about that. That is very scary and extremely worrying um, because so far, as at least from where I come from, um, we can see that China is way ahead, but they own also, and this is sort of the more 
positive, if you want to call it that way, um, note is that they have a very homogenous data set, which is Asian faces. Um, but with them exporting the technology, of course, they gain other uh, data. Ooh. So if they export it to Africa, one of the objectives is not just to make money and broaden the market, but also mix up the data set. Mm. Um, and what I find extremely worrying about China is that they've been really good in recent years, especially in the last year, to create um, extraterritorial um, laws. So um, some of the laws, it's not very clear, honestly, because they don't write it in their like black and white, um, but it gives them the potential to draw data from companies that they've invested in. And as you know, they've invested in a lot of European companies, uh, a lot of African companies, Middle East, everywhere. And if that data is being misused in ways that we think it might be misused for surveillance um, purposes or other purposes, um, then that's really sort of the worst case. What can we do about it? So the bad news is not a lot. Um, there is no way once you're kind of in that data set that you can get out of it. Um, there's not really a way to protect yourself, especially when it's public surveillance. There is the aim of bodies like the European Union to have rules against this. Um, but again, that's a slow process and you don't know how effective they will be implemented. So it's very worrying and I think it's also a test balloon for other technologies coming out of China. Um, and it started also gradually. Um, and I fear that now with so much else going on in the world, we're missing the geopolitics of tech in a lot of our discussions, not just on artificial intelligence, but other technologies as well. But of those that we're talking about, AI is certainly one of the most potentially dangerous. There's a quote by Putin, which uh, he made a statement to a group of students saying that artificial intelligence is the future and whoever becomes a leader in this sphere will become the ruler of the world. Mm. Coming from him in particular, that's... Uh, a really scary, another scary prospect. Um, you mentioned earlier that Russia is another leader in this field. Can you talk a little more about, is it a, a military, uh, part of their military that is uh, developing these technologies or is it actually uh, the private sector, which would surprise me, but I might, um, I might not be aware of. So Russia is not to be discarded as a as a leader in this. Um, certainly their strengths are in other fields like cybersecurity, but then those fields get mixed quite a lot. So imagine you have to lead a cyber war against an artificial intelligence or against a highly automated system. You can't win. How are you going to win? So obviously most of their research is in the field of how they can actually automate warfare. Um, and that's very scary. Um, and it's always on the border between the private and the, pub, the military sector that's sort of blurred um, in Russia. Uh, but it is extremely scary. And many experts like Bruce Schneier here in the U.S. have warned against artificial intelligence becoming an actor in cyber war because you can't win. Right. Like, how can you out outgame it? You can't. Um, and I'm pretty sure... Um, that that's something that the Russians are looking at mm. and other countries, but um, they are sort of, their capabilities are quite strong. Yeah. Um, 
I wonder what makes you optimistic in all of this. Uh, what are, and, and specifically about geopolitics and AI, what are some best case scenarios? You know, we talk a lot about this, the threat, and it's real. But what, what could um, a healthy and, and uh, a use of artificial intelligence in the 21st century in international politics look like that actually encourages human flourishing? Yeah. As opposed to yeah. promoting destruction. I'm fascinated by two fields in particular, and both of them ha are global challenges. Um, and that gives me hope that there will also soon be a global discussion, like a more global discussion on this, and maybe even a global body. And those two fields are the medical field and the field of climate change and action against climate change. In the medical field, um, there is no better actor to research and conquer global pandemics than artificial intelligence. We've made so much progress in the pandemic on you know, precision medicine, gathering data, um, finding you know, vaccines, et cetera, um, than we have made during the pandemic. And I think it's really fascinating to be able to help more people by uh, precision medicine. Um, and that's AI is a huge factor in that. Um, so I'm very hopeful for that field. Um, I'm very hopeful for cancer research. Um, mm -hmm. And I think AI can have tremendous impact in that. And the second field that I'm even more excited about is the impact that AI can have um, on fighting climate change. Um, AI is one of these actors that has, I think, a potential of, uh, to, to diminish um, carbon uh, like greenhouse emissions um, by, I think, a hundredfold if, we, if you read some studies. Um, and that's no human effort can do that. Uh, no human effort can design um, carbon negative buildings. Like we have one in Vienna um, that the university designed. It's the first carbon negative building in the world. And an artificial intelligence designed it because wow. no human can do it as efficiently. Um, we can use artificial intelligence for supply chain analysis. We can use it um, to, to figure out, you know, uh, our transport systems um, and mobility systems. We can use it to make things more efficient. We can use it to regulate energy grids, like so many ways to apply it for, the, for good. Um, and I hope those will outweigh the risks that we see in certain types of AI. Is there anything, Kirsten, that we have not yet covered but, but you feel could be part of this conversation, something perhaps, and perhaps something else that you're hopeful of or perhaps a threat that we have not uh, discussed? Mm. I think one thing that makes me hopeful also is that the community of AI research globally is relatively, is still relatively small and that I'd say more than 90% of these individuals that work there are very conscious of the risks. Um, there's only very few bad actors um, out there, bad apples out there. And it's a very global community, even you know, across the US-China divide, the US-Russian divide, uh, the Europeans in there. So it's a very global community. And I do hope, and they've done so in the past, they've always spoken up about their technology and the ethical implications. And I hope they stay that kind of ethical community. Um, I'm sure it wasn't easy, for instance, for the Google researcher to step up and maybe and then even lose his job. But he did. Uh, he did because he felt called upon um, to do so. And that has happened in a lot of time, a lot of times in recent years. And I hope that the AI community 
um, will keep to be that kind of ethical community that it is now. That makes me hopeful. That's wonderful. Uh, you know, I, I share your optimistic uh, view. I think a lot of we have so much agency. The outcome is uncertain and it takes a lot of work. But without a positive vision, it's very hard to achieve a positive result. So I really appreciate that. And maybe coming back uh, while closing, coming back to Star Trek, which I, you know, <laughs> I, I really credit that the Star Trek for a lot of um, my optimism about the future because they've designed this world where humanity has overcome a lot of these struggles that define our time and age. And they, you know, there's material abundance. Uh, making money is no longer the primary reason, um, the pri primary driving force in social progress. But people work to better themselves and the rest of humanity. And I've always thought that was beautiful. But feel free to share whatever it is that uh, you appreciate about the show. <laughs> so I really appreciate about the show that all the technology is in the end used for the greater good, right? I mean, they go where no man has gone before, but they bring often a positive thing to it. Uh, and a lot of technologies used to heal people or feed people or you know, rescue planets. And that's what I really liked, that there was always a happy end. And uh, that's also what I think will happen here. It will take work. It won't, you know, happen immediately, but there is this positive vision, at least that I have and um, that I want to work for and put, put energy in. Kirsten, thank you so, so much. This has been a huge pleasure. Thank you. Today's episode of The Big Picture was produced by Wissal Zibda and Ryan McAvoy. It was made possible with the support of the Yale World Fellows Program at the Jackson School of Global Affairs. Our theme music was composed by Ravi Krishnaswamy at Copilot Music. For updates on future episodes, you can follow me on Twitter by searching for Bella Bess. Thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs>